Welcome back to Public Health Explained, our series where we explain public health things as best we can in digestible pieces. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So we will continue our conversation about welfare with our first dive into one of its components, main component. Uh, Typically, when people think of welfare, they think of giving money slash cash to people. This, I think, is the type of welfare that gets the most controversy. I don't know. What do you think about this? I agree. I think this is the sort of stigmatized perception of welfare that like this is the thing I heard a lot of negativity about growing up in the 80s and 90s. And sort of when people talked about welfare, this is always what I thought about, not recognizing how much broader welfare is as an umbrella term. But but there's definitely a lot of stigma and negativity around this topic. Yeah. Today's episode is all about this topic. So there are many programs and sub programs that fall under this category. So we'll focus on the big ones for this episode just because we can't go into all, you know, dozens of them. So to start, we're going to start with some numbers. In the fiscal year of 2021, the U.S. spent... And and I will caveat this by saying like 2021 is it, it is COVID year. So a lot of this number is slightly inflated due to COVID and their emergency response to COVID to a normal year. But, you know, still, it's I think it's pretty representative. So the fiscal year of 2021, we spent one trillion and fifty six billion dollars of almost all welfare programs in the U.S. So this is all welfare programs combined is about one trillion dollars or one thousand billion dollars, if you will. It seems like a lot. But uh, that's only about $3,200 per capita. And our healthcare budget is four times that. And our military budget is not far behind at $800 billion. So I know, like, you know, what is, you know, the principle that after a number gets to a certain size, like people just don't necessarily know how to comprehend it? Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. And that's a thing we do in public health is using social math. How can we break down a number and relate it to something that is more understandable, more relatable? Because if you asked me how much is a thousand billion dollars, I I have no idea. But knowing that it's a little bit more than three thousand dollars per person in the U.S., that helps me quantify. Well, okay, yeah, that that's it's not all that much, really, per year. Yeah, not per day, not per month, per year. Three thousand, uh, roughly a, a year. And again, our healthcare budget is four times that. So. The biggest bucket, this surprised me. I don't know if this surprised you. You've been in the public health policy or health policy space much longer. The biggest bucket that we spend in the quote-unquote cash assistance bucket is the tax credit bucket. Does that surprise you or no? I don't know if surprise is the right word. Thinking about how we have structured systems and how we are determining who Mm -hmm. is worthy and eligible for different pieces, I think having these refundable tax credit categories is actually not too far off from what I would expect because if you are paying taxes, then seemingly you're you're having some revenue that you're generating, likely through employment, and then you're going to get extra money back from the government through the form of you know earned income tax credit, et cetera, and maybe less dedicated towards other kinds of services. Yeah. So this is our biggest bucket in the cash, quote unquote, cash assistance category. It's $140 billion or 13% of the welfare budget. And this is the biggest one. And the next one is the supplemental security incomes at 58 billion, which is about 5.5%. So already like less than half of the previous category. And this is what surprised me. The welfare welfare, the TANF, the temporary assistance for needy family, like classically that's what people refer to as welfare, is only 15 billion or 1.4% of our 
total welfare budget. So a tiny, tiny part of our welfare budget is actually cash assistance. And that's what shocked me. Like 1.4% is cash assistance. Well, I think it comes back to, again, who we are deeming worthy of receiving services when they are in need. Yeah, this is a common theme, folks, that we're going to come back to. So the first thing to notice is that the biggest cash-based welfare program are the tax credit programs, which actually doesn't mean cash is being awarded. I am not a tax person. It depends. It depends. So particularly, this changed during COVID. So folks with kids during the pandemic, in order to provide support for folks as part of the American Rescue Plan, people received a check yes, of a varying check. amounts, right? You actually got the check, not the other, like just, there was one just for kids, just like an advance on the earned income tax credit. There were other COVID related checks that went out to folks, but there was one. So that is one instance where you're potentially getting some cash sent to you. But in general, this is something that you get sort of an extra bump on your taxes in terms of the the deductible, and then you're more likely to get a larger tax refund, sort of depending on where you fall in the tax bracket. Yeah, you sort of, obviously, you have way more tax experience than I do. And I made the mistakes of thinking that I could figure out how taxes work in an afternoon, <laughs> which is uh, not possible. And I have so much more respect for people who do taxes for a living now, because this is a very, very complicated system. And I to this day, I still don't think I understand exactly how it works. I think you touched on this. So a tax credit like obviously there are exceptions like you mentioned but a tax credit is basically you just pay less taxes i think no <laughs> when it comes time to do your tax return so you're not paying less taxes in that you see less taxes coming out of your check mm-hmm. every pay period but rather you pay the same amount of taxes and then when your tax return is calculated you get a larger bump on what is eligible to be returned to you based on where you fall. Yes, that is a much better explanation than whatever I have planned. So thank you so much, Cass, for bringing that into today's episode. So this is something that I think may need a little bit of explanation. So if, if it's just like taxes and tax returns, then why is it still considered paying, right? Why is it still considered that the government is paying money in this welfare program? Because you are getting a larger tax return than you would otherwise get without this credit. So the government is paying you through the tax return this credit. So it it comes one time a year as opposed to other services where you're getting something monthly or biweekly, but you're still getting money back just as it's operationalized through the tax return. Yeah. And you can also think of this as essentially the government is reducing its tax revenue. That's the cost of the government where they're not getting as much taxes from the people as they quote unquote would have if it wasn't for this tax credit. So you could think about it that way, which I think is why this is like the biggest bucket because taxes is such like a huge part of everyone's life. And that's why this one is like 140 billions of the budget. Well, and there's a a big push by a lot of folks to (laughs) lower our taxes. And so this is one way that you can lower, I'm using air quotes there, taxes, because technically you're still paying in the same amount, but then you lower your taxes by getting a larger return. And people are, you know, generally supportive of lowering taxes, particularly for folks who are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And then we just need to make sure that our 
folks on the higher end of the spectrum are paying <laughs> their fair share, which we've talked about why that isn't the case, but that's for another time. Oh, yeah. Tax is another whole bucket of worms. But there are essentially two main types of this type of tax credit. There's the earned income tax credit, specifically the refundable portion, and the refundable child tax credit. Both of them are quite complicated, and I understand why tax professional exists, but we can talk about some of the main themes that these two buckets have, these two things have. So one... It requires that you have an income, i.e. a job. So if you don't have a job, you actually don't have a good access to this. You could have income through other sources, though. It's important to remember, right? So you might have income through Social Security or through some of the other ways that we've talked about individuals having access to income. So it's not only that you have a job, but generally that's what people think about, right? You do do a tax return because you've paid taxes on your income, your salary, your hourly wage, and then you do your tax return. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The main theme is basically that you need to file taxes to get this. And we can discuss you know, what that means for people. And also, this one rewards people with kids more than single adults, which on the surface level is like, oh yeah, it makes sense because you know, raising kids is a very expensive and uh, energy-consuming process. But remember this. We're going to come back to this when we discuss TANF. Like, generally, welfare programs rewards people with kids rather than single adults more. And it is also debatable. Uh, not that generous, this tax credit. You kind of have to have income consistently under uh, you know, 59000 to receive anything. And obviously, it's not a linear thing, right? Depending on what your income is under 59000 your credit will differ. This is debatable whether it's generous or not. I certainly don't have enough tax know-how to debate whether it's generous or not. Uh, I don't know if you have any opinions on this. I would just say I think there's evidence to suggest that we are not providing people with the services that they need and the resources that they need to thrive, not just survive. Our target often is survival and we should be prioritizing thriving. <laughs> thriving. I was about to there isn't survival as there's no equivalent for thrive other than thriving. So I was trying to come up with thrival. Thrival. No, that's not right. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. So we'll leave it at that, but it is the biggest bucket. And remember the things I talked about, this will come back later. So the second biggest category is the SSI or the Supplemental Security Income at $58 billion, significantly less than the tax credit bundle, but it is the most costly single item welfare we spend money on. So the tax credit bundle is actually multiple things bundled together. We're talking about that in aggregate. But for single item, the SSI or the supplemental security income at $58 billion is the most we spend on a single item. And I think we talked about this in the last episode, but definitely Social Security and SSI are not the same thing. Just to reiterate that again, Social Security is proportional to how much you put into the program via Social Security taxes. This is not welfare. This is an entitlement program at retirement. In contrast, Supplemental Security Income, SSI, is based on need. So you have to have some criteria met, limited income and resources, and that is a separate system from the social security system that folks pay into with their income. Right. And now you must think, oh, okay, this is all fine. People get like, uh, you know, a supplemental income. That's all good. But drum roll. It is only for the aged, which is defined as 65 and above, the disabled and the blind. So if you're disabled or blind, you can get it at any age. But if you're not disabled or blind, you can only have access to this when you are older than 65 years old. In other words, no adults, unless you are disabled or blind, can receive this. Right. So it's really a complement to Social Security. Yes. It's not an actual 
cash assistance that we think of cash assistance. So keep that in mind. Like I'm, this is a theme that I'm trying to build. Like no adults, unless you're disabled or blind, have access to this uh, supplemental security income. Keep that in mind that our welfare system is really not set up to give adults in poverty aid. So lastly, we'll talk about the program that is actually giving cash to people or TANF. Only 15 billion, right? It is a fraction of the others and a fraction of the budget. And the history of TANF, it is very new. This is something I didn't know. It was only started in the 90s and it was signed by Clinton, uh, I believe, in 96. So it's very new. So the concept of welfare is not new. But TANF itself is very new, relatively new. It started in the 90s. Just to, And can we remind folks what TANF stands for? Yes. Temporary Assistance for Needy Family. Let's ponder about that name a little bit. So Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. What do you not notice in that name? Adults. Yes. People. It's very family-oriented. Very family-oriented, and we'll come back to this. And also temporary, temporary assistance for needy family, which is distinct from a universal basic income, right? I think that just from the title alone, you can tell that this program is doing something else than what traditional welfare is doing. And we had a previous welfare program called Aid to Families with Dependent Children Program. That was the program that TANF took over. And that program is classic welfare in a sense that TANF is not. So what do I mean when I say TANF isn't classic welfare? So it is explicitly temporary and explicitly made with the purpose of getting people back to work. It's also state-run, and this means that there's a lot of variability across states. There's different eligibility criteria, different return-to-work criteria, and so it sort of leverages and leans really hard into this temporary part. Yes. Right. So in some places, you're expected to return to work as soon as you can, or sort of at a maximum, you may have three years of support. And if you think about families, right, at three years old, a child is not suddenly ready to be on their own <laughs> um, at home while people are going to work. And the cost of childcare is so expensive. So thinking about the cycles we're putting people into where they feel pressured to return to work, and then they might not have the resources that they need to provide for their kids. Yeah. And then some states have actually very strict work requirements. So some states say if you're not on the job market, i.e. you're not you know, writing resumes and stuff like that within 60 days, you actually get a, a reduction in whatever cash assistance you give. So yes, varies very wildly state to state. And uh, there's also a requirement to do quote unquote work activities. It doesn't have to be like you're working, but you need to do work activities in terms of like you're going to resume workshops, you're going to like job interview workshops. There's a bunch of work activities that you need to do 30 to 35 hours a week. Otherwise, you might get a reduction in your cash assistance. So this is all predicated on the fact that it is getting people, quote unquote, getting people back to work. And that was the climate of the 90s. At the height of the welfare discourse, it was sort of revolved around like, we don't want to just give people money for no reason. So this was the workaround that TANF had to do to kind of get it past Congress because Congress was definitely not going to pass something that's like traditional welfare or generous like that. And you know how I talked about how the, the thing about single adults and how TANF has the word family in its name? A part of TANF is maintaining traditional two-parent family structure. And this was explicit in the bill. A big part of TANF is like, we are targeting families, we are targeting traditional families, and there is a part of TANF that it's about preventing out-of-wedlock pregnancies. And there are some states who have taken that to extreme and said, if you got pregnant while you're on TANF, you actually get a reduction to sort of discourage people from being pregnant while they were on TANF. And I'm not kidding. Like this is this is written into the language of the bill that this is explicitly about maintaining traditional two heterosexual family structures. Well, and the other challenge with 
many of these programs, as we've talked about before, is that it's not something that people are identified automatically as having a need. You have to apply. And so if you are not knowledgeable or if you don't have the resources or the connections to be able to apply for some of these programs, then you might not even know that you qualify or or that you're eligible to apply. And and we know that we are definitely not reaching the people that we should be reaching, either because of eligibility criteria or because people just don't know that they are eligible and can apply. And so maybe we're reaching about 20% of all of the families that are eligible through this new program or through TANF as it currently is now, but before that it was around 60%. So we are reaching substantially fewer people, meaning that we're not getting the resources that we used to give to folks in need. Yeah. And there was a, I believe New York Times or some other newspapers reporter, they tried to apply for TANF and in a particular state, so obviously it varies state by state, but the number of paperwork <laughs> hoops you need to jump through, uh, that in itself is a barrier. And I think that contributes to why people this is not reaching as many people as it should uh, is because of all the you know criteria and eligibility issues and stuff like that. Also, TANF is a federally funded program, right? So the federal government gives a state a lump sum or some sort of like that, and the state is required to use it. But not all of that is cash assistance. So state actually have a big flexibility of how they spend their TANF fund. So some state will abuse this loophole. In some states, you see as few as like 20% of that fund is actually cash assistance. The rest of it could be workshop or uh, community outreach programs or things like overhead or stuff like that, that they can justify in however way they want so that they can actually reduce the amount of cash assistance they give to people who actually need those cash assistance. In particular states, uh, and I believe this is Texas, but I forgot. Don't quote me on that. Because TANF has explicit traditional family values written into the law, they could spend TANF funding. State could spend TANF funding on things like you know family family communication workshop that could use TANF funds. So anything that's sort of in that realm, state could use TANF funds for. And a lot of states have used this to sort of reduce the amount of cash assistance they have to give people. And that is a big deal, right? This fund was meant to give people cash assistance, but a lot of states have found ways around it. Undocumented immigrants mostly don't qualify, nor do folks with felony records in a lot of states. They also don't qualify. So I think the theme is not a lot of people get the support that they should get, you know? Like, I think this is a big theme that we're going to see again and again is that these programs are meant to cover people who need them, but a lot of times they just don't. Because it comes back to the way we conceptualize who is worthy of services when they are in need. And we are so focused on individualism and people having to be able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, we forget all of the resources and benefits that we may have had access to that others don't. So we are still, for some reason that I cannot comprehend, are paying for all of these downstream harms because we are not sufficiently supporting people upstream during their time of need. Yeah. So I think this revolves around the question of, is giving money to people in need efficient and or effective? Yes to both. Yes to both. Good. A very short and quick answer. Well, to be fair, we don't currently do it in a way that is efficient. We could do it in a much more efficient way. But when it is done well, 
We know in other countries when it is done efficiently and you're actually meeting the needs of people, it can be very effective. Yeah, and I agree with you. And there's uh, preliminary data that supports this. Just giving people cash, like they know what they need that money for and you're allowing them to have that autonomy and having that decision. And this is something I want to get your take on because this is like a, an opinion piece that I found. So traditional aid and intervention, especially on a global scale, like from developed countries to developing countries are often patronizing. And they say also have like some white savior-esque in its uh, intentions because you're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to give you houses or we're going to give you food, right? Like that's what traditional aid is. Traditional aid is rarely money. It's almost always giving resources. And they say like this actually has adverse effects. So I agree with that. And there are, it's sort of the idea of you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a life. Because if you give people resources and skills to be able to support themselves, then that's going to be better in the long term. And so there are some programs that have really taken that to heart. So there was one, this Heifers, Heifers International maybe is the name of it. There's also Pigs for Peace mm. where individuals are given livestock. They're taught how to raise the livestock, breed the livestock. They can then sell it and it sort of gives individuals a way to contribute to their families, the economy of the community, et cetera. And there's a program that I participate in. I'm sure there are others. And so I'll name this one just because that's what I use, but there are other ones. It's called Kiva, mm. K-I-V-A, and it's all about microloans. Mm-hmm. And so you you make a donation to sort of cover all the processing fees so the individual doesn't have to pay that. And you can make donations as small as $5, or sorry, you make loans as small as $5, all the way up to a couple hundred dollars if you wanted to, and you get repaid in small increments. So I use this program. I put in $100 and I made a bunch of loans and then people pay back. There's no interest. And then when that money gets paid back to me, I then reloan it to somebody else. So I've probably made at this point 10 to 12 micro loans. And these are loans like allowing an individual to buy more supplies for their store so they can sell their supplies or allowing them to buy feed for their livestock so that they can then take them to market. And so this sort of cash assistance concept really resonates with me because I think it is not our job to tell people what is best for them. We might have thoughts about what is best for them, but at the end of the day, it's about meeting people where they are and giving them what they need to be successful and what they need to thrive. And if that means that for some folks and, and in many circumstances probably should be the case that we're giving them cash, either through direct benefits or through microloans, I think that's a much better way to to move forward. And that's something very concrete that listeners can do. If you want to yeah. support folks either in the US or internationally, you you can engage in one of these microloan programs. What'd you call it? Kiva? Kiva is the one that I use, K-I-V-A, but I'm sure there are others. Right. And I think this is something that why I am also in support of one universal basic income and also just direct cash assistance is because it just feels weird that you're like, oh, no, no, I know exactly what you need. Here is what you need instead of like, here is support and like cash assistance support. And then you get to decide like how what what works best for you, because in a lot of cases, people do know what they immediately need right now to like not face a crisis. And I'll save the anecdote for IMF and rice later. Okay. On a Patreon page, maybe I'll post about that anecdote of IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund, I believe, um, or some sort of, yeah, they, they did some weird stuff with rice and completely ruined the local economy. But that's, that's a story for another day.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Public Health Explained. Hope this helped you understand a bit about what cash assistance welfare is in this country. Turns out very little of it is actually cash assistance. Uh, next week, we will look at another component of our welfare programs. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. You can find a link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.